Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. My name is Weston Duke, and I'm the campus minister for the campus ministry, RUF, at MTSU, just a few minutes down the road from here. And it's my privilege to be with you all this morning. I want to take this opportunity just to say thank you for two things. Um, First of all, in case you didn't know, RUF is one of the ministries that your church supports. And so I'm very thankful for the longstanding partnership that C3 has had with RUF, both at MTSU, but also around the Nashville area. And second, I also want to say thank you for the students that you send my way. I I think I I can say that C3 has been the most consistent pipeline of students who are involved with RUF at MTSU. And so it's been a real joy for me to take the baton from you and to shepherd those students during their college years. And so I'm thankful that I get to be a partner with you in that way. And in that vein, if you are a student here this morning who is thinking about going to MTSU, then I would love to meet you. I would love to go ahead and make that connection and uh, help in any way I can with your transition into college. Well, this morning, we are going to be looking at one of the parables of the kingdom of God. We're going to be looking at Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. And if you were to read through all of the synoptic gospels, those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would encounter a lot of different parables, many of which are unique to each of those books. But there, is only, there are only a few parables that show up in all of the synoptic gospels. And our text this morning is one of them. And so this is obviously something that the gospel writers really thought that we needed to understand. So would you turn your attention with me now to God's word again? We're going to be reading Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we come to it. Heavenly Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Your word is what gives us life, And your word is what teaches us how to really live. And so we pray that as we come to your word this morning, Lord, that your spirit would be at work, impressing these words upon our hearts. Would you meet us? Would you confront us? Would you surprise us with your goodness and the way that you are at work in the world and in our lives? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, if you have been coming to C3 for a while, you likely have interacted with several RUF campus ministers over the years. Um, of course, Richie Sessions was the interim preacher here before Randy came. Uh, some of you also may know Kevin Twitt, who planted RUF, out, RUF at Belmont out of C3 over 25 years ago. Uh, some of you may also know my predecessor at MTSU, Sam Taff. 
Well, let me let you in on a little secret about us RUF campus ministers. I know we just met, but I'm already telling you a secret about myself. There is one question that we hate more than any other, and that is, so how many people come to your RUF? Now, I know that whenever someone asks this, they're, they're not ill-intentioned. They're usually genuinely interested in our ministry and what it looks like on our campus. But that question stirs up all of our personal insecurities. Because no matter what good things are happening in our ministry, there's always some other ministry on campus that has more people coming to its meetings and is reporting more conversions each year. And the reason that we're insecure about that is because even as pastors, we have bought into the idea that success looks like something that is big and dramatic and measurable. If we are doing effective ministry on campus, then we should be able to rattle off some stats that shows that we are getting results, right? And it's not surprising that we would think that way because as Americans, we have been conditioned to think that way. We are a society that loves metrics. We're a data-driven culture. Think about it. We assign rankings to college football teams before the season starts based on how many four- and five-star recruits they got during the off-season because we believe those numbers will predict their success in the coming season. Or in an election year, the media is always telling us polling numbers and dollars raised, thinking that that will give us some indication of who will win the election. Or most of the students at MTSU that I encounter feel some pressure to have a good GPA because they think that will determine their success later in life. But even after they leave college and realize that your GPA doesn't matter... We just adopt new metrics. Thank you. Yes. Your GPA doesn't matter. Take note of that, students. But even after we make that one realization, we still just adopt new metrics for ourselves, right? Whether that's our weight or how many activities our kids are in or whatever our numbers are at work. And so it's not surprising that when we come to Christianity, we bring the same mindset, If Christianity is true and God is sovereignly bringing his saving reign to earth, then shouldn't it be happening in a way that is big and observable and measurable? You know, Jesus originally spoke these parables to a group of people who thought the same way. In verse 31 of our text, it says that Jesus put another parable before them. And if we were to go back and read these verses in the context of all of Matthew 13, we would see that Jesus doesn't tell these two parables to the crowds. No, he tells them to his disciples. These are the people who have heard Jesus preaching. They have seen him perform miracles. They have believed that he is the Messiah, their long-awaited Savior, and they are eager for Jesus to usher in his kingdom in dramatic fashion. And Jesus tells these parables to communicate to them and to us But that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not what it's like. No, the kingdom of God comes in a way that we don't expect. And how does the kingdom of God come? Well, as we look at these two parables this morning, we're going to see three things. The kingdom of God has insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. 
So first, the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. In, these, in the first of these two parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in a field. And to make his point of comparison clear, he then adds, it is the smallest of all seeds. Now, this isn't literally true. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed that exists, so we do have to give Jesus a little bit of poetic license here. But he chose the mustard seed because it was the smallest seed that farmers commonly planted during this time. And consequently, it had become proverbial in Jewish thought for its smallness. And if you've ever eaten whole grain mustard, then you have a general idea of the size of a mustard seed. I I could stick my thumb into a pile of them, and maybe 40 of them would stick to the tip of my thumb. And Jesus says from this tiny seed, from this thing that seems so small and so insignificant, the kingdom of God grows. And he reinforces this idea with another parable. If there were any women listening who maybe weren't as familiar with farming, they would have been familiar with baking bread. Because during that time, you couldn't run to Publix on your way home from church to pick up a loaf of bread. No, everybody baked their own bread at home. And so Jesus tells another parable in which he compares the kingdom of God to leaven in bread. Now, not only could you not buy bread at the grocery store, you also couldn't buy fast-acting yeast at the grocery store. So the way that they would leaven bread is by taking an old piece of dough and working it into the new dough. And to draw out the seeming significance, excuse me, the seeming insignificance of this little piece of leaven, Jesus says that the woman took it and put it into three measures of flour. Now you may be wondering, that sort of seems like a vague unit of measurement. How much is three measures? Is that like three cups? Well, this actually would have been 50 to 60 pounds of flour. And so this little piece of leaven that would have seemed like nothing in comparison to to so much dough, Jesus says, from that, the kingdom of God spreads. It comes from seemingly insignificant origins. And on the one hand, this surprises us because as I already said, we're conditioned to think that big things come in impressive packages. But on the other hand, this shouldn't surprise us because this is the way that the kingdom of God has always come. When Jesus first showed up on the scene, he began preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And why did he say that? Because the king had come. He was the king bringing in his kingdom. But our king also had insignificant origins. Was he born in a palace? No. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. And do you know what people said when they heard where he was from? What good can come from Nazareth? Even the people in his own hometown rejected him because he was just the son of the local contractor. And the religious leaders at the time rejected him in part because he didn't have the right credentials as a rabbi. But this apparent nobody was in fact the king who was bringing God's kingdom to earth. So Jesus himself shows us that God's kingdom always comes from seemingly insignificant origins. And it continues to come this way even now. Which means for us that the small things matter. Our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness may seem insignificant, but they are the seeds from which the kingdom of God grows. They are the leaven 
from which the kingdom of God spreads. So parents, let me talk to you for a moment. The small things that you do with your kids really matter. Reading the Bible with your kids and praying with and for your kids may seem really ordinary, and they may seem insignificant in comparison to all that the world is bombarding them with. But these simple acts are the seeds from which the kingdom of God is going to grow in their lives. The same is true for the small ways that we live out our faith before our kids. You know, as parents, we realize pretty quickly that our kids are watching everything that we do. They pick up on all those little behaviors that we may not even be aware of, and they start to imitate them, which means that they notice your small acts of obedience to God, and they actually learn to follow him by watching you. Another small way that we can live out our faith before our children is by asking for their forgiveness. A while ago, the New York Times published an article called How to Apologize to a Child. And it actually featured a Covenant Seminary professor who did his doctoral dissertation on that very subject. And in the article, this professor said that he often polls students in his class to see how often they heard an apology from their parents growing up. And he said, sadly, the answers skew towards once or even none. But how can we get our kids to take seriously a faith that is based upon the forgiveness of sins if they never see us ask for forgiveness? On the other hand, when we do the small and humbling work of repenting before our child, we are preparing them to humble their hearts before the Lord. Now, even if you're not a parent here this morning, your small, ordinary acts of faithfulness are still the leaven from which the kingdom of God spreads in this world. You know, we might be tempted to think that in order for cultural renewal to happen, what we need to get is the right politicians with the right policies and the right public programs. And none of those things are unimportant, but this parable seems to be telling us that cultural renewal is going to start on a much smaller scale. It's going to happen when we make time in our busy schedules to help someone in need. It's going to happen when we make space in our budgets to give to someone with less resources. It's going to happen when we simply seek to be salt and light at our schools or in our workplaces. That's how cultural change is going to come. Or in the church in America, we seem to be under the impression that in order for people to come to faith, what we need is a Super Bowl commercial. (laughs) Now, I'm not condemning that tactic. But if that is the case, then that doesn't leave much for ordinary Christians who can't afford prime time ad space to do. But thankfully, Jesus in this parable seems to be telling us that people are going to come to faith when we do really simple things like get to know our neighbors and our coworkers, when we pray for them, when we ask about their, their life and their beliefs, when we share our life and our beliefs with them. As the prophet Zechariah says, don't despise the day of small things because the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. Second, we also see that the kingdom of God has inconspicuous growth. If we slow down and we reflect on these two metaphors that Jesus uses, we see that the way that the kingdom grows is slow and often invisible 
to the eye. Think about planting a seed. If you've ever done any gardening, you know that you can't expect a seed to become a full-grown plant overnight. We want them to, and that's why we buy the fully-grown basil plants from the grocery store. (laughs) Because seeds grow slowly. After you plant them in the ground, they're hidden beneath the surface of the soil, and for a while, it seems like nothing is happening. But beneath the surface, that seed is germinating and taking root, And then eventually, it sprouts out of the ground. And when it finally does, we want to show everybody that we're a real gardener. We don't kill everything we touch. But then even after it sprouts, it takes days and weeks and even months to grow into maturity. If you were to go out every day and try to determine how much it had grown from the day before, you would probably conclude that nothing is happening. Uh, There's a book that my wife and I read with our daughter, Emma, on the five senses. And on one of the pages, it says, I don't see the flower grow. (laughs) Plants grow so slowly that it's almost imperceptible. And we see a similar message with Jesus' second comparison of the kingdom of God to leaven and dough. Now remember that Jesus is talking about 50 to 60 pounds of flour. So there is a reason that he says that the woman took it and hid it in the dough. Because that little piece of leaven would have been completely enveloped by that much dough. It would have disappeared. You wouldn't really be able to tell if it was having any effect. And then just think about how long it would have taken for this woman to knead a little bit of leaven all throughout that much dough. If you've ever hand-kneaded dough, you know that it is laborious work. All that folding and pressing and turning. And, and nowadays, if you were to go to a bakery like Meredith's that's doing a really big batch of dough, they would have these big machines that do all of the mixing and turning for them. But this poor old woman wouldn't have had one of those. And so she would have spent all day at her kitchen table kneading that leaven throughout all of the dough. But that's how the kingdom of God grows. It's inconspicuous. It can be so hidden and so slow that it looks like nothing is happening at all. This is why we have a saying in RUF that if someone asks you how the ministry is going, you should tell them, I'll let you know in 20 years. We say that because we know that impact is best measured in the long term. It's not just about the the change that we see in a person's four or more years in college. It's about what kind of spouses and parents and friends and employees and church members they become. But we also say that to remind ourselves as campus ministers of this reality, that the kingdom of God grows inconspicuously. Sometimes it looks like my efforts are having little to no effect on a student's life. I may meet with them regularly. I may repeatedly invite them to Bible study and to large group, and they may come more and more sporadically and make more and more baffling decisions. But just because it doesn't look like anything is happening to my eyes doesn't mean that God's not doing anything. And if you're here this morning and you're a newer Christian or a younger Christian, I want you to bear that in mind. Hopefully, you've experienced some excitement about becoming a Christian. And rightfully so, because becoming a Christian is the best thing that can happen to you. 
But let me warn you that as you get a little further in, things are probably not going to go the way that you expected. God may not seem to answer some of your prayers. Some of the people that you try to talk to about Jesus may not share your enthusiasm. You may even struggle with the church because it just seems like everyone here is a bunch of sinners. (laughs) But just because you can't see what God is doing doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. And do you know what the greatest demonstration of that is? It's the cross of Christ. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, what God was doing was hidden from all of his disciples. Remember, these are the people who thought that Jesus was going to be their long-awaited Savior. But in that moment, when he was nailed to the cross, all that they saw were their dreams of God's coming kingdom getting buried in the ground. All they saw were their hopes being swallowed up by the Roman Empire. What they couldn't see is that was actually the most significant moment in the coming of God's kingdom because it was the moment that he made it possible for sinners like us to come into it. The cross of Christ helps us to trust that God is always working, even when we can't see it. And if you're here this morning and you've been following Jesus for a while, haven't you seen this principle be true in your own life? I'm sure that we could go around the room and hear incredible stories of the way that God has worked in slow and and even secretive ways. And yet we can so quickly forget that this is how the kingdom of God grows. We get caught up in this world where we can track the shipment of our one-day deliveries and we start thinking the kingdom of God should work a little bit more like Amazon. (laughs) And this is why we need to continually go back to God's word to have our expectations recalibrated. And it's not just this parable that tells us that God works slowly. It's the whole arc of the biblical story. When humanity fell into sin in Genesis 3, God didn't fix it immediately. He spent thousands of years preparing the way for salvation in the Old Testament. And then at the end of Old Testament history, there were 400 years of silence when God's people wondered if and when he was going to act. And then Jesus finally shows up onto the scene and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he also says that change is going to continue to be slow and steady. God has always been playing the long game. And so as we join with him in our labors, we need to remember to be patient. We're playing the long game as well. As we seek to raise our kids up in the Lord, as we seek to share the love of Christ with our neighbors, as we labor for God's kingdom in our communities. But we can be patient because Jesus assures us that our labor is not in vain, even when we can't see that God's kingdom is growing inconspicuously. So the kingdom of God has insignificant origins, has inconspicuous growth, but by God's power, it produces incredible results. Let's briefly return to the second of these parables. What happens to this little piece of leaven? Well, it leavens all 60 pounds of flour. And that amount of dough would have made enough bread to feed over 100 people. So incredibly, this little lump of leaven would have resulted in the woman's entire village being fed. 
What about that tiny, insignificant mustard seed? Well, Jesus says that it grows up to be larger than any other plant in the garden. And the kind of mustard that grows in this part of the world can grow to be about 10 to 12 feet tall. So a little seed, 40 of which could fit on my thumb, grows into a tree that is twice my height. It's pretty incredible. But then Jesus adds this this extra detail that may seem a little weird to us. He says that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. What's that about? Well, we should keep in mind that Jesus uses no extraneous words. And here, as he is wont to do, he is subtly making an allusion to the Old Testament. If you didn't catch this allusion, that's okay because it comes from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 17, the prophet uses this imagery of birds making nests in the branches of a tree to describe all the nations of the earth coming into the kingdom of the Messiah. And so with this imagery, Jesus is saying that even though the kingdom of God has insignificant origins and inconspicuous growth, it will spread throughout all of the world. And it shouldn't be lost on us that we are evidence for that claim. Here we are, 2,000 years later, a bunch of people of mostly Western European descent worshiping a poor Middle Eastern man. If you're here this morning and and you're not certain what you think about Christianity, I want you to ponder that fact. Why are you here? Sure, you may be here because a, a friend or a family member invited you, but dig a little deeper than that. Why are you here in this gymnasium-like building off Hillsborough Road on a Sunday morning listening to me talk about some words that a guy said two millennia ago? If Jesus was just a great religious teacher who had some helpful things to say about how we could live a good life and feel better about ourselves, his life and his teaching would have been just another drop in the ocean of history. But I would contend that the fact that you are here this morning is because of the incredible power of the gospel, which the apostle Paul tells us is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he means everyone. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago has grown to include people of every ethnicity and every culture. It has spread to permeate every educational and socioeconomic class. It has transformed lives and communities and entire civilizations throughout history and across the globe. You are here this morning because Jesus brought God's saving reign to earth and it has been spreading in the world all around you. And Jesus can bring that into your life as well. Maybe you're here this morning because the seed has already been planted. And maybe, is, maybe today is the day that that seed actually sprouts into faith for the first time. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, I hope this is just encouraging to you. We probably feel like Christianity is waning in influence. As you look around in our culture, it seems like being a person of faith increasingly puts you in the minority. We hear reports of people leaving the church in droves, and that can discourage us into thinking that being a Christian is fighting a losing battle. Can our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness really do anything to stop the bleeding? 
we should remember that over the last 2,000 years, Christianity grew from being a group of 12 guys to the world's largest religion, which now includes almost a third of the global population. I know I rebuffed our reliance upon stats earlier, but here are some numbers for you. (laughs) A study done on global missions by Gordon Conwell said over the last 200 years, as philosophers were saying that God is dead and scientists were saying that religion is becoming obsolete, during that time period, Christianity went from making up 22.7% of the global population to 32.4% of the global population. And all predictions say that that number is only going to increase in the coming decades. Here's another one for you. A recent study done by the Pew Research Center said that Americans raised in non-religious homes were twice as likely to become religious than Protestant Christians were to become non-religious. Twice as likely. Now we don't rely on statistics like these, but they can bolster our confidence in Jesus' words. That God is using our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness to advance his kingdom on earth. We may not be able to see it now, but one day we will see the incredible results. One day we will see the tree fully grown. One day we will see the bread fully leavened. One day Jesus will return And when he does, we will proclaim with all the host of heaven, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. A while back, I read a story of a man for whom this will be true. In 1912, a Canadian doctor named William Leslie went to the remote areas of what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo to be a medical missionary. And for 17 years, he labored among the tribes there, sharing the love of Christ in both word and in deed with no apparent success. At the end of those 17 years, he he returned back to Canada because a conflict with some tribal leaders had led them to drive him out of the area. And nine years later, in 1938, William Leslie died believing that all of his efforts had resulted in nothing but failure. And then in 2010, a team of missionaries returned to the same areas of the Congo to minister to what they assumed were unreached people groups. And what they found blew them away. In a 34-mile radius, there were eight villages with thriving churches. And each of those villages had their own choirs that wrote their own gospel songs. In one village, there was a stone cathedral that could seat up to a thousand people. But at some point, the congregation had become too large, and that led them to start a church planting network in the villages around them. And when the missionaries started to inquire about the origins of these churches, the tribal people referenced this man named Leslie. But they really weren't sure if that was his first name or his last name. They just remembered some guy. (laughs) And with a little more research, the missionaries learned of Dr. William Leslie, the man who had lived and labored among those people all those years before. One man labored for 17 years with no visible fruit. And then almost 100 years later, tribes that had once been hostile to the gospel became reproducing communities of faith. 
insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That is how the kingdom of God comes. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness that we have imbibed too much the ways of this world. We think that you need to work like the world around us, being big and fast and measurable. But God, in your goodness, you surprise us. You take small and ordinary things and you slowly grow them to produce results that we could never have imagined for ourselves. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to have faith in you. Help us to have faith in your wisdom and in your power. And help us to have patience, Lord. Help us to have patience both in our own lives and in the world around us as we wait for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all of these things in the name of our great King Jesus. Amen.